0: Hi, this is Wayne Randazzo of the WCBS Mets Radio Network, and you're listening to Baseball and BBQ.
1: of the Mets Music's Podcast and you're listening to
2: Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue one of my favorite podcasts and I know it's one of yours too the only problem is after I get done listening to it, I'm hungry
1: alright guys take it away
3: Welcome to episode one hundred and nine of Baseball and BBQ. It's my, it's Chris Russo impression. I'm Jeff Cohen. I'm here with
2: the always Leonard hilarious Abraham.
3: Leonard Abberman. How are you doing?
2: Uh, well, wow. no, you are actually taking the mantle. That was very good. That would was- you? You? are very, very good. good. You. You, you? That was good.
3: Welcome back to Baseball and
2: BBQ. We're very happy that it's coming out. Yes, you're better yeah. out than in. That's right, Len. You want to tell us about it? Yes. You know what, Jeff, this is actually, I know I like to do this every once in a while, draw back the curtain. You, you know that we've gone to a weekly format, at least until the end of the year. And this is actually one reason why. We had this interview a while back with Luke Eplin, who wrote a book that I, I know I get crazy about our authors and our books that we have on. But this is this is called Our Team. The Epic Story of Four Men and the World Series that Changed Baseball. Jeff, who are the four men? Larry Doby, Bob Feller, Satchel Page, and Bill Vick. Now, this is one book with all four of them. Each one of them is a book, is a, like a trilogy in itself. And they are all in this one book. Luke Eplin gives a great interview and and we apologize to Luke because this should have been sooner. But you know what? It doesn't matter. The, what he says in this book is still in, it's time. In the interview
3: it, is great. Yeah, it's timeless. It's about the 1948 Cleveland Indians. We're now, You're not
2: going to ruin it. Don't tell us who won. <laughs> I,
3: I will tell you, though, now that we know that the Indians are no longer their name is now the Cleveland Guardians. But this was back in 1948. You can look it up. Uh, I'm not going to tell you when the World Series, Cleveland Indians. Uh, <laughs> but this was a, a great story. And I'm very happy that Luke was able to share his, his work with us.
2: Yeah, uh, it really was. So let's, let's get right into it. Luke Eplin, enjoy this.
3: Baseball and BBQ is honored to have with us Luke Eplin. Luke's writing has appeared online in The Atlantic, New Yorker, Slate, the Daily Beast, and the Paris Review Daily, among others. Born and raised in rural Illinois, Luke now lives in Queens, my old stopping ground. His new book is Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. It's about the 1948 Cleveland Indians, and we are pleased to have with us Luke Eppon. Luke, how are you? I'm
1: doing well, great. Glad to be here. Yeah.
3: I, I want to. This is such a great book. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot of things. And Len and I like to say we're, you know, we're not historians, but we really like baseball history. And this was really brought out a lot of stuff. Stuff I didn't know. know. So, really great
2: book. Thanks. Len, you want to start us off? Let's just, for one second, say why there's so much here. Okay, because we're talking about four men Larry Doby, Bill Vec, Bob Feller, and Satchel Page. Four extremely well known and influential baseball people. And you were able to get their whole lives and stories, maybe not their whole lives, but an extreme amount of information in this book. And it it almost seems like, you know, this 300 plus pages isn't enough. But tell us how you came upon the idea. I mean, just start us off with your your thought process, Luke.
0: Well, I am from Southern Illinois. I grew up a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Uh, it's, it's very much Cardinals country where I was from. But my grandfather was one of those very unusual people. He was a St. Louis Browns fan. And uh, as you both know, and I imagine your listeners do too, St. Louis up till 1953 had two Major League Baseball teams, the Cardinals, which are always usually pretty good, and the Browns, which are always usually pretty bad. So I grew up hearing these stories about the Browns. And I guess that Anybody that grows up hearing stories about the Browns eventually hears stories about Bill Vec, who was the last owner of the team and did some of those most notorious sort of promotions and stunts while he was the owner of that team. So I thought to myself growing, growing up that I really wanted to, to explore this individual more. He kind of sounded mythic to me with what he was doing. So it was always my intention to write a book about the Browns. But whenever I started sort of researching Vec in earnest... I was reading through old archives of the Sporting News and I just kept seeing these sort of four names pop up, Dobie, Feller, Page, Beck. And I started noticing how like they resonate off of each other and how they're in tension with each other and how they even sort of seem to circle each other before they come together on the Indians. And I thought to myself, this is these four characters could could really carry a, a narrative and present sort of an alternate story of integration than the one that we normally hear.
3: Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely that, fantastic. And you're right. The, the intersection of these four characters really did resonate throughout the book. I mean, I I noticed that the barnstorming tours in the early thir- in the 30s and 40s where Feller pitched against Age before they were teammates, obviously, and before Feller took his own barnstorming tour, they were rivals, you know, before World War II. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, it, it's really yeah. fascinating. Bob Feller... As you know, he he was a prodigy. Basically, he grew up on a farm in Van Iowa. His dad sensed this extraordinary ability in him, and so when he was a young, when he was a boy, his dad just cleared off a piece of pasture, built a, a ball field there for Feller. He becomes a he becomes kind of a local sensation. Through happenstance, he makes it to the Indians at age 17, and in his first starts. Uh, ties the American League record for strikeouts. He is a sensation and sort of takes the league by storm in 1936. And I thought it was extremely interesting that when Feller comes back after that 1936 season in which he basically grabs the attention of the athletic world, they have this big celebration for him. They call it the Bob Feller homecoming. And it kind of goes on year after year after that. It becomes an annual tradition in his hometown. But that first year when Feller is 17, they think well we can make a little bit more money off of this kid that has just come out of here satchel page is coming through iowa and they were like, this is the perfect thing. The young prodigy against the 30-year-old Satchel Page, who by that time was already a legend in the Negro Leagues. And so they hook up immediately. It's its really extraordinary. It's almost as though it was fate that these two men would come right as Feller's career is, is coming together. They pitch identically almost. I think Feller has eight strikeouts. Page has seven. They don't allow a run in the three innings they pitch. And it's almost like there's this sort of idea that there's something to this rivalry. And for the next dozen years, they would they would face off against each other just countless times, uh, winning and losing along the way.
2: Luke, one of the big thing about this book, and anytime it, it, you talk about this time period with baseball, is yes. the integration of baseball. And of course, we've got Larry Doby, who the, the connections with our podcast are, when I say connections, Jeff and I, Went to Hinchliffe Stadium. We oh, did a, wow. We we did an episode on Hinchliffe Stadium, which is yeah. obviously in Patterson, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and is basically the home of Larry Doby. You yeah. know, he went to the high school there, played football on that field, he played baseball there. So it's just it's very interesting to see all the connections. But the, I guess uh, my long-winded way of saying this is: there's talk about integration, and there's talk about Branch Rickey. In the book, there is talk about Bill Veeck, who his first team that he bought was the Milwaukee Brewers. Yes. Which at the time was a minor league team. Now there's talk about him buying the Philadelphia Phillies. And also the subject is that he's going to buy the Phillies and he's going to fill the roster with players from the Negro Leagues baseball. Right.
0: Or so he says, yes. Right, okay, (laughs)
2: right. Now, and I was talking to Jeff about this last night, and and I said, because if I had this question, I'm hoping that there's going to be someone out there that's going to read this that's going to have the same question. Yeah. So Bill Vec doesn't buy the Phillies. Yeah. Okay, but he owns the Brewers. Now, do you think, or do why do you think that he didn't do that with the Brewers? He had the ability to do it. He owned the team. He wanted to do it with the Phillies. What was stopping him from doing it with the Brewers? He could have done the same thing. Maybe he's not bringing in a satchel page or uh, he could have brought in a Larry Doby. He could have started him in, you know, in the minors. or right. Do you think that the whole thing with Philadelphia wasn't true? Or what was the reason that he didn't do it with Milwaukee?
0: Well, it's a thorny question. There was—I'm—I'm I'm assuming that you're referring to a, an article that I believe was with Saber um, from ser- several historians that questioned whether Bill Beck, in fact, had the intention of buying the Phillies and stocking the roster with Negro League players. This would have been in 1942, after the 1942 season. The Philadelphia Phillies came onto the market. They were a very downtrodden team. This was right whenever players from the major leagues were being pulled into the military draft. And so already teams were shorthanded. Bill Beck sensed that that in this sort of environment where players like Bob Feller had already gone to the service, he could perhaps sneak into the pennant race by signing the best players from the Negro League and finding talent where there wasn't. This was not reported at the time. Vec began talking about it a little bit in the 1940s, uh, later in that decade, and then quite a bit in the 50s and 60s, he would, he would talk about this. And it is mentioned in his autobiography, Vec is in Rec., I, I'm not sure I, would, I can get into Vec's head and, and sort of figure out why he didn't want to do this with the, with the Brewers. He did manage to sort of throw in an influx of talent that took the Brewers from a dead last team to um, one game within a pennant within a year. And so perhaps he, in his mind, he didn't necessarily need to, to do that. I think that Vec very much approached integration almost as like a money ball sort of game. He certainly did believe in the, the sort of larger ideals of integration, but I think he also was just doing it because he recognized that that was where the talent lay. And so whenever his sort of talk about the Philadelphia Phillies, particularly during wartime, whenever people were losing players left and right, I think he, he believed that, that he could do this. Whether or not this was all talk, I don't know. I mean, I think that you can look at Vecas and Rec and you can see certain stories that perhaps are quite tall tales. I'll give you one more example. In, in Beck is in Wreck, Bill Beck talks about how in the 1948 season, when Larry Doby looks like he's not going to make the Indians because he had a bad 1947 season, Beck says, that the Indians barnstormed uh, that that year from Tucson where they had spring training through Texas on their way back to Cleveland. And they would have played the, the giants at that time. Beck said that Dobie had some rough games in Lubbock, Texarkana, and then Houston where the fans were just merciless to him. And then Doby hits this mammoth home run that just goes way out of the stadium. And after that home run, it was like, everyone was like, well, we can't cut this guy. He is, he's, He's so amazing. The only problem with that story is the Indians did not play in Houston in 1948. They played in Houston in 1949. And if you look at the archives, Dobie hits a mammoth home run in 1949 that out of Houston. And so while the fans probably were very, very mean to him, by 1949, Doby was already established. So it wasn't quite what happened, but it makes for a good story. So with Vec, you always do have to sort of say, how much embellishment has been added here. And so with this, this Philadelphia Phillies question, I don't know, but I have a feeling that if Vex somehow did manage to land that team just as competitive as he was, I don't doubt that he would have tried it. <laughs> so I went with it. Right. So I, the,
2: Phillies, it's a, the Phillies may have been, they may have actually then been, if something had been different, they could have been the first team with an African American ball player, history would have been totally different. I think Bill Vec was definitely, uh, we could all agree on he was like the PT Barnum of baseball.
0: Yeah, and I don't think that I, I don't want to say that Vec lied or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I I think that Vec Vec told very good stories. And um sometimes stories grow over time. And uh, and he was very interested in entertaining his audiences. But at the same time, I think his intentions with integration as he showed with the Indians were true. So if he had managed to land the Phillies, I, I don't doubt that he would have tried it. And one of those stories that you
3: had in the book is that when he was the owner of the Milwaukee breweries and he would purposely go into the, what we'll say the colored section of the bleachers to sit with the spectators. Yeah, Even yeah. Though it, you, you write that the sheriff was telling him that it's only for black fans and no one else allowed there. And he actually called the mayor and Beck refused to back down. Could you tell us what his response was to the mayor and the sheriff? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, this is this is a story that I that he told. And I believe this one is probably true. He, he did go into the, the segregated stands The the sheriff called the mayor. And Vec basically told the mayor that if you don't, if, if you don't get out of my face right now, and leave me alone, I'm taking my team out of, of, of this Florida city. And I'm going to tell the press exactly why. And so from that day on, Vec uh, said he would go to that same spot in the bleachers and just stare at the security guards, just saying, you want to come in and try it again? So, yeah, he was that kind of guy. He, uh, he didn't like people telling him what he could and couldn't do. <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> yeah. Now He actually, uh, staying on Bill Vec for a, a minute, because like I said, you, we have four very interesting and, and extremely important uh, people in this book. But with Vec, he leaves for the war. He leaves for World War Two, but he didn't have to go. He wasn't drafted. Right. He was, you say in the book, he was flat footed. He was older. He didn't need to leave to go to the war, but he does. And he gets injured. And subsequently he ends up losing his leg, part of his leg, then, then more of his leg and continuous. So he really, uh, that, that's an interesting story as well.
0: Yeah, he's in sort of perpetual pain when he buys the Indians in 1946. He has a mishap in the war where a misfiring artillery piece comes back down on, onto his foot and sort of smashes it. He doesn't want amputation at that time. He's resistant of it. And so he's wandering around in sort of a a walking cast and he's got sort of a gangrenous foot underneath it that reeks and he has to sort of pour cologne down there to mask the smell. And so during that entire sort of first year with the Indians in 1946, he's sort of in and out of the hospital, getting treated, having doctors come to see him. And finally the doctor tells him, you have to, we we need to amputate this. There's no other way. And so the day that he gets his, his wooden leg, which is just weeks after he loses his his leg to amputation. He throws a party in this glamorous ballroom in Cleveland and dances the entire night away until finally blood is spilling out of his leg mm-hmm. on the dance floor. I mean, it was just his sort of person. It's kind of like a way of saying that even this is not going to stop my forward momentum. And so during the 46, 47, 48, which is mainly when my book takes place, Vec is sort of continually I think there's three major surgeries that happened in that, that, that time of him. So you can only imagine how much pain he was in and how much it took him to, to continue forward.
3: Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, the drive that he had. Here, he He's always going to speeches. He's always going to some type of banquet, you know, t- talking to his common people at bars or, or pubs or wherever that he would go. He would just talk to the common, common man about the team. But he really had a drive and really had to promote all his endeavors.
0: Yeah, and it was kind of like, it was the post-war period. I think that like we'd just been through the depression and then the war and the entire country was kind of like taking a, a deep breath and sort of looking to baseball, looking to get out and just sort of like release this pent up energy that they'd had. And in Cleveland in particular, VEC sort of, it's like baseball that does this. The Indians become sort of a sensation, and Beck is the sort of figurehead. He's somebody who doesn't even seem to sleep. He's just kind of out and about at all hours of the night, talking to everybody, sort of closing down the bars. It's just this sort of like energy that, that is that is pulsing through him and through the country at the time.
2: Right.
0: I want to
3: get, get back to Bob Feller and, and Larry Doby right now. Cool Harbor happens, Feller enlists in the Navy. Yeah, from landlocked Iowa, why he went to the Navy is, anyways, guess. Larry Doby is also drafted into the Navy. Yeah, Doby having an experience about traveling to Chicago by rail with other athletes, both black and white, but then separated upon arrival. Can you talk a little about how that, you know, his experience of going to uh, enlisting in, or not enlisting, but being drafted into the Navy?
0: Yeah, so Larry Doby grew up in South Carolina, and then he moved to Patterson, New Jersey, where he went to high school. And he was a sensation in high school. He was so popular in high school that his senior year, the school sort of arranged a banquet in his honor, where they wrote poems and sang music and composed things in his honor. He was a real sort of popular individual in his high school, even though he was one of the very few Black students there. And so he had a sort of feeling of acceptance from there he went to the Newark Eagles after that and also got a scholarship to play basketball and he gets drafted so he he gets he takes a train from Newark And he's there with a bunch of people that he would have recognized from the area, sort of athletes that were around his age, people he might have seen in high school, people he might have competed against. And he just kind of thinks, well, we're all going to go fight in this war, so we must all be going to the same place. And whenever they get to Great Lakes, which is where the naval training base is, the white recruits go one way and the black recruits go another. And Dobie says in interviews throughout his life that it was the first time that Segregate him just really kind of punched him in the face. It was just... He didn't expect it, he didn't know about it, and it really sort of hurt him. And it's like, whenever he, he was a very introverted, quiet individual uh, regardless, and he just kind of would go into a shell and just kind of like retreat within himself um, at that time. But regardless, he does end up thriving at the military base. He becomes an athlete and plays on uh, segregated teams and and is well-recognized for his talent.
2: The book is called Our Team. It's the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. Our guest is Luke Eplin. He has written an incredible book. Highly recommend that you get this when it comes out. Let's talk about Satchel Paige. Yeah. Satchel Paige is, seems to have some Bill Veeck in him. <laughs> you know, he's a showman. He's a showman, but he is an extremely incredible professional pitcher. Mm -hmm. and but he basically creates his own its own i guess theater or or demand or well the demand is there as he pitches but he basically creates this whole
0: satchel page industry almost yeah he's his own pr machine he's he he sort of knows how to how to use his image and his narrative and sort of mythology that springs up around him to his own economic advantage. He's sort of masterful at building himself. He's just this incredible entrepreneur and his business is his pitching and himself. And he's he's just so incredible. I mean, I really don't think that there's been a better entrepreneur as athlete than Satchel Paige. I think Bob Feller is, is similarly pretty good at that. He's really good at taking his narrative, the sort of country boy who comes into the majors and sort of using that to his advantage, but he doesn't have that sort of like spark that Beck and Page do. And so during a time whenever what the white mainstream press does not pay hardly any attention to to the Negro League, Satchel Page sort of crosses over and gets sort of stories about him in the Saturday Evening Post and Time Magazine and all these other places, to the point where Page even says that he began to autograph as much for white fans as black fans. He sort of becomes someone who makes as much as a major league superstar while in the negro leagues it's it's a really incredible sort of way of building himself up and i mean it's uh, it's amazing and i i have that great scene in the book when satchel page gets signed by the indians and he throws a shutout in chicago against the white Sox. bill veck comes down into the the locker room to see him after the game and they just kind of look at each other afterwards and they're smiling at each other and you can just see they see they see that in each other. They see how there are sort of similarities in the way that they, they do. It's almost like Paige is the superstar that Beck has been waiting for. He's the only one who can sort of match his theatricality and his sort of his sort of panache and 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 everything. Paige is is, is a sensation.
3: The thing that you wrote in a book which really I guess, really surprised me. Uh, I did not know that, that uh, Bob Feller had his own, I guess, corporation where he produced the uh, barnstorming tours after, I guess, 1946 season after they come back from, from the war. And he, yeah. he visits Page to get a team and play them. Although, I guess, in some parts of the country that they didn't play Page's team because it was Jim Crow laws. But th- you did say one thing in the book that really surprised me was that Page sued Beller, because of uh, back wages, because of uh, how his pay pay was calculated. Uh, That really surprised me.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Feller, when Feller goes to war in 1942, he's one of the first professional athletes to sign up. He is in his absolute prime. He's 22 years old. He's already won over 100 games. He has over 1,000 strikeouts. He's on pace, it seems, to get some major league records. He loses almost four years to the war, and it's kind of like, well, there goes any chance of the records, but he also loses a lot of money. And so whenever he comes back, he's kind of determined to make up for lost time, both on the field and off the field. And so he sees that sort of the most lucrative way to get the money back is through barnstorming. And so he doesn't want to use promoters and agents and things like this who are going to take a cut. He wants to do it all himself. And so he plans this sort of ambitious crust cross-country tour that has airplanes and stadiums and, and the like and and in order to not have to pay any liabilities in case anything happens he incorporates himself and he sort of recognizes that if this tour is going to be successful it has to be good matchups and so who does he get to match up against well there's only one answer it's satchel page so these two kind of go cross-country and they're just going head-to-head sometimes twice a day for about a month whenever they do get to California. The the teams kind of break up a little bit, and I the story is that Chet Brewer, who was another Negro League player that Satchel Paige knew well, um, was examining the receipts and recognized that Feller was paying Page the net um, amount rather than the gross amount that they'd agreed upon. And so Page confronted him, and then eventually sued Feller for not giving him their agreed upon contract. But I should say that whatever feud they had was was short lived because then. The next season they were right back to barnstorming so it was it was a short-lived thing kind of, kind
3: of they uh, needed each other i guess
0: yeah I, I think that i say in the book that they 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 kind of used each other in a way it's like feller needed page for that thing to be for this barnstorming tour to be successful he also needed page in order to, for him to become the sort of branded businessman that page already was um that's what feller's trying to become and page by this time is in his 40s Jackie Robinson has already been signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1946 and Page is thought to be too old to, to cross over into the major leagues. And so he's sort of, I believe using these tours as a way of saying, look, I can get these major leaguers out. Like uh, it's, it's not a problem. And so it's, it's his way of sort of showcasing his continued dominance.
3: Right. And they made a pretty good book, Barnstorming, because he said in the book that players in the world series was getting paid less getting their, their World Series shit and going out on the road. And, and actually some owners paid, uh, I guess, Ted Williams and players like that not to go barnstorming.
0: Yeah, well, they, yeah, the owners were worried that their star players might get, you know, might, might suffer an injury, you know, playing a, against a, in, in some sort of podunk town. So they didn't want their players to be barnstorming. But uh, the World Series, yeah, there was an article in the Sporting News after the 1946 World Series that the losing members of the Boston Red Sox Got less than what players than what Feller was paying his barnstormers to barnstorm with him, and so there was a fear in the major leagues that some players might say, you know, screw the postseason, I'm going to go barnstorm with Bob Feller. I'll make more money doing that. So the next season, uh, the commissioner says that barnstorming tours cannot start until after the World Series is over, which enrages Feller because he believes that those early days in October are prime barnstorming because the weather is not quite as cold.
2: Sure. And also, Feller's group was not the only barnstorming group. Right. And that was, so they were competing against each other for barnstorming cities and dollars and the players. And these players would go to the highest bidder for the barnstorming.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Paige tries to recruit Doby onto his team in 1946, but pa- or Dobie went with Jackie Robinson's barnstorming team. So yeah, there were competing factions there.
3: I want you, if you can, comment on some of the comments that Bob Feller made. I guess we we would character, I, at least I would characterize it as, as harsh comments in yeah, in yeah. today's in today's world. Did he really believe that, or that more of a kind of like, oh, you know, I don't want my friends losing their jobs, or was it was it really that some type of deep rooted, I don't want to say, uh, you know, or maybe racially coded or something like that?
0: It's hard to know because. Uh... I mean, I, I I tried in this book not to slip too much into their heads, but I do believe that if you if you listen to what Bob Feller is saying, in 1941, he says he matches up against Satchel Page, and whenever a reporter asks him if Page could make the cut in the majors, Feller does kind of say yes, but he also says that Page doesn't have much of a curveball, he doesn't seem to, to work hard, he's not throwing his fastball enough, things like that. And then in 46 and 47, he's asked similar questions about sort of Negro League players, if he thinks that any of them can make the grade. And he says, oh, they're, they're good athletes. Some of them are fast. Some of them can, you know, throw hard. But I don't think any of them sort of combine the qualities that are necessary to make a complete major leaguer. And yes, those are harsh comments. I've always sort of interpreted it through the lens of Feller's own narrative. Feller has, as we talked about, this sort of miraculous entry into the major leagues. He is a farm boy. He's done chores his entire life. He's thrown every day with his father. He has this sort of like pull yourself up by the bootstraps sort of classic American, white American particular ideology where all you have to do is have sort of self-reliance and rugged individualism and you can achieve your goals. And so he kind of sees, he kind of is talking about that through the lens of, of, of that when he's, he's not saying, I don't want to play against these players or I don't want to, my, I don't want white players to have to compete against black players. He's saying that these players haven't done the work to, to be here. These players individually aren't good enough to be here they haven't combined the qualities of doing that in other words he's saying that like they haven't pulled themselves up by the bootstraps in a way he's kind of blind to the or seems to be blind to the more sort of structural and systemic barriers that prevent those players from from crossing over but that seems to be his worldview and the way that he sees the world and i mean he says stuff like that basically throughout his entire life
3: um, yet, yet, yet later in his life, he's always welcome to, to these Negro League re- reunions and type of yeah, banquets. Right. They're, they're, they're thankful for to for having these barnstorming tours and to showcase their skills. So, you know, it's very, guess
2: uh, very complicated, I guess it would I mean, be. Yeah,
0: I think that's a good word for it. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> there are little things that I like to pick up in these books. One is Satchel Page. Pitching in a barnstorming, I think it was the barnstorming tour, and he faces Phil Rizzuto, <laughs> yeah. And Phil Rizzuto uh, manages a walk off of him. Right. There are certain thing. There are little things like that that, when you're reading, like, wow, Phil Rizzuto faced Satchel Paige.
0: I know. Yeah, I know. I wish I could have gotten more into the these sort of individual games. Some of the write ups for these barnstorming games are just are just great. There's one, there's one thing, I didn't put it in the book, but like they're playing two games a day sometimes and then just immediately getting into these planes, traveling, sometimes arriving in the next city at like three or four in the morning and then playing the next day at like noon. And at one point, a, a, one of the hitters, I can't remember which one, gets a hit off of Satchel Paige and falls asleep while he's on the base paths, just falls asleep standing up. <laughs> he's so exhausted. And Paige just literally walks over and tags him. And it's just this like incredible comedy that happens at the time, but it's kind of like I think I I think I said in a deleted passage that Feller is 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 just he's like Vic he's just sort of like we gotta we gotta keep moving we gotta get it going and so everything was happening at such a fast pace when they got back from the war.
2: Now you you followed you write about these four men, of the four, and maybe it's almost like picking which your favorite child is, but. Did you have one as you're doing the research that just interested you so much that you wanted to find out more and more about the person?
0: I mean, I think that Veller, Vec Feller and Page were similar in certain ways, different in others, but I think had shared quite a few similarities, in particular in the way that they they knew how to use their narratives. These are men that all published more than one autobiography in their lifetime, so they sort of recognize the power of their story. And so there was a lot of great details that could come with them, not only through these books, but through the many interviews that they gave throughout their lives. Larry Doby was a much tougher individual to get to know. He was reticent. He never published an autobiography. He was a little bit sort of reluctant to do interviews, especially at that time. And so anytime you got Larry Doby saying something revealing was almost like, wow, yes, it, it's it's like you found gold. He was, I think, the the toughest person for me to really dig into. And for that reason, I became, I became so much more interested in him. And I think that sort of one of the things that I tried to do in the book was the book begins with Feller's story, because I think it was a quintessential baseball story at the time, the sort of white farm boy leaping to the major leagues and sort of setting the hitters back on their ears. And then it ends, with Doby's triumph, it ends with sort of Larry Doby hitting this great home run in Game Four of the 1948 World Series and sort of pulling the Indians to within one game of victory. And so, I think I was trying to show that like the Larry Doby origin story is just as interesting and just as meaningful as the Bob Feller one. But yeah, it's just not as seldom told.
3: Absolutely, and let's talk about getting Larry Doby's path to the major leagues. We all know well. People should know that when Jackie Robinson was signed by Branch Rickey, he was kind of more or less poached from the from the Negro leagues. Didn't pay off, uh, didn't pay for the uh, services to the Kansas City Monarchs. Just signed to a contract. Whereas Bill Vack went to Etha Manley of the Newark Eagles and kind of negotiated the buyout contract. Now probably wasn't <laughs> probably, well, less one sided, but uh, he actually went through the right channels and okay. went to Effa Manley and, and kind of purchased his contract. And then he right, right, didn't go to the minor leagues, he went right to the major leagues. Yeah, Can you talk yeah. about his, his, like his path, how he got there?
0: Really incredible yeah. story. Doby doesn't find out that he's going to be going to the majors until like two or three days before he actually does so. So I think Vec and Effa Manley negotiated Doby's contract on July 1st. Doby found out on July 2nd. He ends up playing a game, this is all in 1947. He ends up playing a double header with the Newark Eagles on July 4th in Newark. He plays the first game, rushes to the showers, goes to Penn station in Newark and is about to take a train to go to Chicago where he's about to meet up with the White Sox. So he, he travels literally overnight from the, from the Negro leagues to the majors. One day he's playing in the Negro leagues, the next in the major leagues. I, I can't even imagine how jarring and how shocking it must be to the system. And in fact, the writers and reporters that had followed him to Newark Penn Station to to see him off saw that whenever Dobie was sitting there, it's like the enormity of the situation was hitting him. He was He was fidgeting. He was sort of clasping his hands and he was just kind of stunned. It, it just couldn't quite sink in. And so he says that whenever he first comes up in the majors for the first sort of 10 games or so, his teeth are chattering whenever he comes to bat. He's just kind of, it's like the, he hasn't had time to process the situation that he's in. And so in the 1947 season, in addition to that, he's facing sort of extreme racism of the kind that it perhaps, you know, uh, he hasn't faced since the, the Navy and he's, he's facing kind of a cold clubhouse from the Indians. Some of, some people were pretty welcoming like Joe Gordon, Bob Lemon, Bill McKechnie, some others, but some of them were not welcoming. And so, uh, He's really put behind the eight ball there in the 1947 season and does not thrive.
2: You have something in the book that's interesting. So just a little side story. We had on uh, Bob Kendrick, who's oh, the president, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, right? Okay, Kansas City. The second time we had him on, we wanted to talk to him about the first player on each team right. to, to be the first African-American ball player on each team. Because our thinking, everybody thinks, oh, Jackie Robinson had it so hard. Right. And he did. Don't get me wrong as the first. Absolutely. But then the first player on each team probably had it almost just as hard as the first. Yeah. So Larry Doby says something very interesting. Hmm. Maybe I'm saying this wrong. Please correct me if, if I am. But he said something like, you know, it wasn't like all of a sudden everyone was going to be nice to the second black baseball player, like they would treat
0: me differently
2: than they're treating Jackie Robinson.
0: Yeah. It, yeah, he did say something along those lines. And he, he also, I think, sort of recognized that, like, Jackie Robinson, by being the first, got this tremendous media attention. He's in New York City, which is the media capital of the country. And he kind of thrives immediately on a, on a really good Brooklyn team. I, not immediately, but maybe after a month or two and so he has a sort of spotlight on him that Doby doesn't. And so Doby gets a lot of attention whenever he first comes there and then he's in Cleveland the spotlight is a little bit lesser, but that just means that the racism that he was facing wasn't as reported, but it right. was as intense as right. he still he had it. Was. Yeah, dealing with it not only the racism but just the the loneliness that he was going to. He didn't room with anybody a lot in some cities he was sent to separate accommodations, a black hotel or something like that. And so he would sort of see his teammates on the field and then they would go out and sort of spend the night together, as in like go out to a bar or something or or, or to dinner. And Dobie was just alone. And the fact that he w- if he had a bad day or if he didn't even play, he would just be there in his hotel room sort of uh, you know, having to think over everything. It, it, was, it was a huge burden. I think he said that in his first week in the majors, he lost something like eight to 10 pounds. I mean, the, the stress just must've been uh, unfathomable.
3: Right, yeah, and you're right. You're right he, he did not thrive in the 47th season and he had some highs and lows uh, at the beginning of the 1948 season. I mean, he was almost sent down to the minors. Then they brought in, I think, Hank Greenberg to talk to him. Could you talk about his influence? Hank Greenberg had on Larry Doby?
0: Yeah, it's it's a little complicated. Um, Hank Greenberg is signed by Vec before the 1948 season. Vec wants him to play. Greenberg had played on the Pirates the year before. Greenberg decides to retire and go into the front office. Joby was not expected to make the team in 1948. He switched from being a second baseman, which he was in the Newark Eagles, to the outfield. And the idea was he needs to go to the minors to learn how to play the outfield. He'd never played the outfield. He didn't know what he was, what, how to do it out there. But he has such an amazing spring. He's just tearing up the ball. He advances so much in the outfield that they're just like, we really can't send this guy down. He makes it into the team in 1948, and they have a couple of times where they need to trim their roster. And Lou Boudreau, the manager, is thinking to himself, you know, maybe, maybe Dobie is a little green. He's making a lot of errors. He's striking out a lot. And so he tasks Hank Greenberg to go over and basically kind of say, you know, how would you feel if this happened? And Dobie sort of almost, in my mind, uncharacteristically, just answers in a very direct way and says, you know, I can hit 300 up here and you know just basically says and greenberg says yeah okay but what if we send you down and he's like well if you send me down i'll hit 300 next year and so it's just this very sort of confident direct way of talking and greenberg kind of walks away like this guy's ready and uh, you know apparently convinces Boudreaux that uh you know that he needs to stay and i think he gives a quote to the new york times the next week just saying that he thinks Dobie in 1948 like two months into the season is more advanced than Jackie Robinson was in 1947, two months into the season. So yeah, it's a, it's a huge vote of confidence.
2: Yeah. There's a point later on where Bob Feller falls kind of out of favor with the fans. Yeah. I want to tell us a little bit about what happened there.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting because Bob Feller, as I said, had this sort of classic all American story. He was the sort of golden boy of the depression. He comes back He has this amazing season in 1946 where he supposedly sets a single season strikeout record that later gets amended. Rube Waddell had more strikeouts than, than known. Anyway, he becomes this great businessman and it's, it's kind of cheered. It's like, okay, the the all American boy has grown up and turned into this all American businessman. But whenever Feller starts to struggle a little bit in 1947, but definitely in 1948, people start to sort of interpret the business a little bit, a little bit differently, they think that Bob Feller is not thinking about his performance on the field as much he 's too distracted by the barnstorming, the commercials that he 's doing the the sort of radio show, the books that he 's writing, all these things that he has going on to make extra money. They really sort of start interpreting that negatively and Feller himself was a very blunt, forthright person, and he didn 't always help himself he wasn 't the most diplomatic of Person, He didn't quite know how to calm down the situation, but yeah, it, through the, the all-star break in 1948, Feller has a losing record. And I think I say in the book that if Feller had had a winning record, if he'd been the normal Feller that they knew, maybe Vec wouldn't have, maybe Vec wouldn't have felt such urgency to add Satchel Page to the Indians. You know, the Indians were in such a tight pennant race. They needed more pitching, especially with Feller not having a great season. And so Vec went and looked, looked for it and he found Satchel Page.
3: And that's what, that was going to be my next question: How Beck, Ford, and, why Vec for in Page, and how ironic it is because of Taylor's struggles. He goes to his, his old rival, I guess, from barnstorming days and brings him in, and Satchel just lights it up.
0: Yeah. He- incredible run in July and August where he comes out of the bullpen. He's a sensation. Fans are lining up everywhere to see him. And then he does well enough that Boudreaux start, it starts him. And he goes on this incredible run where he starts setting records basically everywhere he pitches. And it's it's like fans are literally tearing the turnstiles out of the floor to, to go see him. And it's such an interesting period because Paige Page is pitching so well at a time when P- Feller is pitching so poorly. And then in September of 1948, Feller suddenly uh, just recovers and, uh, and becomes the old Feller. And at that time, Page loses his mojo. It's almost like Feller and Page are on some sort of like pulley, where if like one goes up, the other must go down. They're like tied, but cosmically, I guess. I don't know.
3: <laughs> it's called Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that Changed Baseball. May, four main players are Bill Vec, Larry Doby, Satchel Pace, and Bob Feller. Before we wrap up, could you please let us know where we can get the book? I know you're part of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, and please tell us uh, where anybody can get in touch with you.
0: Yeah, the Social mm-hmm. Book Club. Um, I think I'm going to have an interview up with them uh, soon. It's a great, it's a great thing. If you haven't checked it out, there are uh, lots of lots of books that are being published this month and the next, including great biography of Dave Parker coming out. Um, really, really looking forward to that. Yeah, if you want a signed copy of the book, I'm doing it exclusively through my local bookstore. So you can go to Storybookshop dot. I think it's org, <laughs> oh, .com, storybookshop.com. If you order from there, you can get a signed copy. If not, it's wherever books are sold. I'm on Twitter at Luke Eplin, at, as in at Luke Eplin. And yeah, I, uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> I just have one or two more questions uh, about the book.
3: And by the way, everybody... Nineteen forty-eight, the, the the Indians win the World Series. I don't think that's a secret.
2: Sorry,
1: Who no, <laughs> ruined
2: it. Who ruined it. I, oh, there were people that may not know that. If they if they don't know that, and they're reading this book, yeah,
3: there's a couple of things that uh, I want to just ask you about one more before we wrap up. The dynamic between Satchel Page and Larry Doby. I thought that was extremely interesting. How they two different personalities. And I think Dobie really wanted to have a, a black teammate and this one and Paige wasn't probably the, the best one for him.
0: No, Dobie, Dobie talks about loneliness constantly. And, and at the beginning in 1947, he's, he's, he's confiding in, in, in black sports writers in particular that he really wants another black teammate so that he has someone to be with on the road, someone that he can, he can really talk about, the sort of racism that he's facing that other white players just wouldn't know about. And so he it's sort of a, a constant refrain for him for a year. What he gets instead is Satchel Page in 1948. Satchel Page is 17 years old, 17 years older than Larry Doby. He came up at a different time in the Negro League. He had much different experiences and a much different sort of worldview and a way of carrying himself. And so these two individuals just had sort of differing ideas about integration and how one should sort of act and, and, and comport oneself in the majors, and it caused them to have quite a bit of fric- friction. They were definitely not uh, friendly. Larry Doby basically said that Satchel Paige, uh, he hardly saw him on the road because he'd been, Paige had pitched everywhere in the country and he had contacts wherever he went. And so he would show up in a city, go to the game, and afterwards he'd be out with his, out with his friends. And so it really wasn't the situation that Larry Doby was, was hoping for
3: right and and after the world series in 1948 Larry Doby had a obviously a great world series but in 1949 nothing really changed for Larry Doby i mean he went through the same troubles loneliness staying in segregated hotels and and, and the like
0: yeah i think the promise of 1948 wasn't kept there is this sort of idea when the indians win the world series that that this was going this was going to really cause the dam to break that the indians were a team that had always struggled to, to make it to the, uh, the postseason. They could never sort of get past the Yankees, the Tigers, the Red Sox, teams like this. And it's only through integration that they're able to make this step. And so it's a way of showing other teams that, hey, If you want to compete and you want to keep going in this new world, you're going to have to start doing it yourself. In fact, the Boston Braves and the Indians played in 1948. Their owner said, we're going to have to start signing players from the Negro Leagues if we're going to keep up here. But that's just really isn't what happens. Integration does not speed up all that much. The Indians, Larry Doby is still segregated the next year in spring training. He's still segregated in a lot of hotels. It's kind of the same stuff that, uh, that, that, that he'd faced in 1948 all over again. And it yeah, it, it it does affect him in a way that Bill Vec would say in his autobiography that if Doby had come up just a little bit later when things were just slightly different, he could have been one of the greatest players in Major League Baseball. Yeah. Larry Doby is in the Hall of Fame. It took him a while to get there.
3: Luke, fantastic book. Thank you so much for being with us and we really appreciate it. Everybody, our team, go get it.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank
2: you, Luke.
3: It was excellent. And we hope you enjoyed the interview with Luke Eplin. I, I know I
2: certainly did, Len. You know why we didn't at the beginning of the show, you know, we didn't say who our two guests would be. But, oh, well, we we have a very nice guest. Uh, she's been on before. This is her second time. As we said in the interview, she must have really enjoyed herself because she's back. Not only is she back. But we they, she sponsored a contest, a barbecue contest. And do we have uh, the winners? A barbecue, what? Do we have the winners? Yes. Yeah. In the in the interview, you know what? In the interview, because the winners have already ah, received their okay. their sauce. All right. It is Brie Blackford. She is the co-owner, right? One of the owners of Elda's Kitchen. The sauce is really amazing. So four winners who their names will be announced in the interview, but four winners are really enjoying three wonderful sauces. Excellent. And with that, here is Bree Blackford baseball and BBQ. You guys know that the sauce game is a tough one, but if you're really good, you're going to make it right. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Well, we have on with us tonight a return she must have had a really good time the first time we're so honored because we have none other than brie blackford of elda's kitchen we're going to talk to her about a lot of new things a lot of stuff see what's going on in her world and we've got a contest to announce some winners so jeff let's do it let's welcome brie blackford back to baseball and bbq welcome brie
4: thank you guys and thank you for having me on your show again
2: you're very welcome see jeff i told you there are some people that actually like us yeah i can't believe it she (laughs) likes us (laughs) should we get right into the contest so we get that out of the way or should we we save that to the end what do you think
4: you know what? I'll let you guys decide on that one. Either way, I'm good.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, we might as well announce the winners. All right. We'll announce the winners. Elda's Kitchen was extremely generous with us. They came to us and they said, you know what, guys? We've got this extra sauce just sitting around. No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> kidding. We've, we would love to give your listeners a treat. So we're going to have a contest. Well, actually, you guys... You didn't specify how we were to do it. We came up with, let's have a contest, right? All right. So we did. We said we were going to have three winners, listeners who would get in touch with us through our various methods and tell us who Elda of Elda's Kitchen is would win. And Brie, why don't you tell us who Elda was?
4: So Elda was my Italian grandmother, if you watch my lives, either on Facebook or Instagram, you will hear me refer to her as Nani. So she was my Nani. She taught me everything. As a small child, I was in the kitchen right next to her.
2: <laughs> so this is nice because this is like a family tradition that it, it, it's really nice. We had on, and I don't know the way, the way our podcast works. She may be before you or whatever, but we had on Leanne Whippen and she is uh, very much into barbecue and it was her father who really introduced her to it. When she was a kid, he has a rub that he came up with called pig powder and she's continuing with that. So it's a very, it just reminds me of what you are doing with your nani. That is just so nice. Yes, absolutely. All right, so we ready?
3: Well, the beautiful tradition. <laughs>
2: All right. Here <laughs> we, we go. It. Drum roll. <laughs> That's our we have such a budget <laughs> for production. Okay. The winners of the sauce are Sam Sestaro, Eli Abameir, Adam Beanstock, and John O'Brien. All right. Hey. So we we appreciate it. You even gave one extra because we had four and you didn't want anyone to get cheated.
1: Nope. <laughs>
2: so they have been notified. And actually, I would guess when you guys are listening to this, they may have received their sauces or are about to receive them. So enjoy that. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Very thank delicious. You. Get us, get us rolling. Yes. They are.
3: <laughs> Free. I wanted to ask you, you know, it's coming toward the end of the year. I'm wondering if you have anything special planned for the holiday season, any sources that you're going to put out there, any gift packages that could be available on your website or sold in stores. Could you let us know if you have anything special planned?
4: So, you know what, guys? I have to tell you, like, I start planning for the holiday season in, like, July. Okay. I am so excited for the holidays and, you know, we do have our gift packs on the website itself. We will be doing a black Friday sale because, um, as someone who does not eat Turkey, (laughs) black Friday is like my holiday. I like Thanksgiving. I love it. I love to host, but black Friday is my holiday. So we're working on a really good black Friday sale.
2: All right so we've got to let all our listeners know mm-hmm. to look out for that guys a Black Friday sale because it, you you guys are going to love it and you're going to want to go shopping so f- that Friday yes going to have <laughs> a lot of traffic on that website exactly
4: very exciting
2: all right so since you last since since we last left Bri, <laughs> tell us what's going on What what have you been doing? What's working for you? I mean, what is going on with the sauce business?
4: We are just so busy. But you know, like when you think marinade, you think cooking and grilling sauces, right? You think summer. So the last time I spoke to you guys was uh, in May, and now we're in September. So those summer months are so busy because everyone's out there grilling. Now it's my job to make sure that everyone knows that hey these aren't just for grilling. Like seriously use our sauces, make a casserole, make a pot roast. We really really busy and we're hoping to keep it that way.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said in the intro, it really is a tough business. I mean the the my favorite place to go in the grocery store now, I have two favorite places. I go to the meat counter, the meat, the meat counter, the meat, whatever you want to call it. And I go to the sauce row and I look and I'm, you know, look and and the thing is, the really good sauces, they're not really in the grocery store. That's that's really the truth. I mean, you you are in some specialty stores, right? Mm
4: -hmm. But you're
2: not in like, you know, stop and shop or things like that, are you?
4: We are not, but you know, we not yet. We are hope you know we're hoping to be one of those brands that you see in every store from your little local mom and pop. Which I have to say, we truly love the mom and pop stores. They're just so much fun, and I love all the specialty products you can get in those stores. So we hope to be in mom and pops up to you know the largest retailer out there.
3: You you mentioned that. After the summer season, grilling, you know, people will cook more indoors. I mean, there's, there's places where you go outdoors all, all year round, but you can cook it indoors using your sources. And you have uh, dozens of different recipes I see on your website. But mm-hmm. are you planning maybe coming out with a cookbook maybe one day?
4: So, you know, that is on my bucket list. I got to tell you guys. So last year on my birthday, my mom and my sisters went on Etsy and they got me a custom cookbook for me to start writing down my recipes because sometimes it's just, you know, post it's here. It's shoved in. I have a production drawer shoved in there. So I have been writing my recipes in there, really trying to document pictures along the way, like some of my favorite chefs have in their cookbooks. And yeah, I've actually started to research different publishers because someone who knows nothing about publishing, <laughs> I figured I'd start there. But yeah, it is definitely on my bucket list to get a cookbook started, not only with recipes that have Elda's kitchen cooking and grilling sauces, but recipes that I grew up with that Elda herself made.
3: Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's going to be delicious. And you know, oh, thank I like you. Like I said, it, dozens of, of recipes on the website, easy to make. Please, everybody, check them out. I mean, they're, they're delicious. I mean, I know I cooked a couple of them myself.
2: What you're doing is you're really you're making a brand. Elda's Kitchen ha- is becoming a brand. So there's a few things that I want to ask you about that. If you you have this brand, food related, are you thinking about branching out into new items, perhaps? They may, you know, Mm food-related, but perhaps not sauces. Is that on the agenda?
4: You know, we always are discussing new ideas. We have been in the talks for a jerky with our sauces. I know you said not sauces, but we do have samples of an Elda's Kitchen pasta sauce out. (laughs) So it's still a sauce, but... (laughs) Yeah.
2: You know. <laughs> well, we Jeff. Jeff actually works on this podcast with a jerky. I, yes, right, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> See, Jeff, I I didn't even do. It was too easy. It, so it was I so did it easy. all myself. Exactly right. <laughs> so that's but that's the beauty of it. You are building this brand, and that is, you know, it's like every uh, other brand. I mean, you, you know, Martha Stewart or. What, whatever the brand, I'm thinking, trying to think of food related, and you know there are some YouTubers that that come out with sauces and rubs and stuff, and and you just you go right to it because you know them. So Elda's Kitchen is becoming a brand.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: How are the cooking classes going that you show on, on Facebook Live and on YouTube? How is that all going?
4: They're going good. You know, people are just people that have known me for years are just shocked because we started see, it wasn't this past January, Is a January before doing these cooking or for me to do these cooking on Facebook and to see the start there, which really don't go back and watch those videos. It's okay. <laughs> and to see where it is now, it's just such an improvement. And I'm learning every day how to do better in my production aspect of it.
3: Are you having fun with it?
4: I love it. I love it so much.
2: And she's made for TV. She's made I for know. the screen. You know, right? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I really, I could see it. I mean, Rachel Ray, Martha Stewart, Brie <laughs> Blackford. I mean, that's that's going to be like the Mount Rushmore of, you know, cooks and things.
4: Oh, I would so- love to be considered amongst one, one of the greats. <laughs>
2: so brie let's let's get let's get serious for a second okay. <laughs> um what are some things or I should say maybe there's just one, maybe there's none, but since you got into this business that maybe one isn't what you thought it would be, and then two that you've you've had to kind of do a one eighty and change things around
4: so You know, getting into this business did I think where that I would personally be where I am today. Absolutely not. I started out years ago. I was, you know, I have three kids, so I'm fortunate enough to be a work from home mom. Sometimes (laughs) we say stay at home. I'm like, absolutely not. It's so busy. Um, (laughs) But so it started out where I did all the behind the scenes stuff. People would ask what you do, and I'd say, well, I do everything that everyone else doesn't want to do. That's my job. And to see the turnaround, being behind the scenes, being the support, to now being out there is just something I never expected, but I have to say, I am enjoying it so much.
3: That's that's great. And you uh, you're, you said you're a, stay- at, a work-at-home mom. <laughs> you, you, the, I like that. Uh, and you you look very young yourself. I assume you have yeah. young children. How are they helping you with social media? I mean, they they have to know all the, the all the whistle bells and whistles on that stuff. I That's mean true. Us, us, us old fogies don't. But uh, <laughs> you you might have you know they might know all, all the things. Are they helping you with that social media?
4: You know, they range. Well, my my, my baby will be ten next Tuesday, and my uh, double digits. Is yeah, I'm like my baby. We're. You know, we're growing up, but actually, so it's my 11 uh, year old who this girl amazes me, her TikTok, she has like 18,000 followers and all she does are these video game ones. So I'm like, honey, can you help mom? Because TikTok's foreign to me. It's like Twitter to me. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And she tries to explain it to me and bless her heart. I do not, I still don't understand it. So I mean they help where they can. The oldest will help me with hashtags. She's like, mom, you've got too many hashtags and <laughs> and the little guys is too busy playing Legos and parkouring throughout the house because they're all homeschooled too. Uh
2: very nice. That,
3: that TikTok is is supposed to be really big. Now I, I'm I'm not a member, I don't know how to use it, but I, I know I see them the I know the New York Yankees are big on, on TikTok.
2: So, they're, you know, they they're short be- videos, right? They're short videos. Yeah. Okay. okay. I
4: have one up on my in the kitchen with Brie TikTok page. And apparently it's a little bit too long that I shouldn't have put an intro. But I was <laughs> like, you guys, we have to introduce it. Mom can't just jump into things.
1: <laughs> but, but you're Forget it.
3: You're on YouTube, though, right? YouTube. And, and I know you're on yes. Facebook Live. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Okay. Can, can you imagine if we put this podcast, I mean, our podcast, we don't have a time limit. I mean, we, we you know, we, we can't make it 24 hours, but can you imagine if we tried putting this on TikTok? <laughs> no, I can't. Uh, I don't think anyone would watch, but geez, because <laughs> isn't TikTok is also for that uh, will probably get in trouble by saying this, but isn't it like for teenagers and and right? I mean, do adults watch TikTok?
4: Yeah. So, I, oh, okay. You know, just last night, I was like, my husband comes in the room and he's like, "Okay, I'm going to bed." I'm like, "Oh, what time is it?" And he's like, "It's like eleven 30. I had been watching TikTok for about an hour and a half at
2: that point. Oh, because you just start
4: <laughs> scrolling and scrolling, oh. and it's these women with these with this beautiful handwriting. And, you know, I could watch someone write the date for, for a long time, apparently. <laughs>
2: wow. Wow. So Brie, I'm back, back to the, so- well, we're on the sauce, but I mean, we're really on the sauce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've got the option of being in stores and you've got mail order. If somebody said to you, you need to pick one, what would be your preference?
4: Oh my goodness. You know, that's so hard to say, but personally, and I will explain my answer afterwards. So personally, I would say in stores, the reason being is that, you know, we have people like, you know, I have aunts and uncles that don't shop online. They don't trust it. And so we have people like that out there who would much rather look at your website, see that it's sold at you know, store A, B, and C and pick the closest one to them to go pick up the sauces. So I would definitely say in-store just so that you know, we can really get everyone.
2: Gotcha. And tell us what is new in eldest Kitchen?
4: So the newest thing would be the Breeze Burger sauce that right now I have been giving it away. I just did another giveaway for it. I'll probably sneak another giveaway in. So it's our Breeze burger sauce and the Breeze burger sauce. Cause people are like, what is that? It is literally your classic burger sauce. A lot of chains across both coasts have a classic burger sauce right. and this is our take on it. And then, you know, obviously we dip fries and chicken nuggets and <laughs> anything and everything in it.
2: And, and it's doing a disservice to just call I mean, you have to call it something. You can't yeah. call it elder's <laughs> re and, uh, burger and pastrami and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it has to have something. But that sauce is perfect to go on a, a nice Reuben. You can even use that sauce in salad. You, you know? know,
4: I've done that. So I make taco salad and usually I'll grab a French dressing or a Catalina or something like that. And I used Breeze burger sauce.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you definitely could. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah, That's that that's part of the fun of it. Just experiment with these things, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Don't get,
2: don't get pigeonholed into something, you know, get, you know, you've got to break free. I mean, that's why uh, I I refer again to our guest that we just had Leanne Whippin, and she actually talked about these competitions. Um, barbecue competitions, which have become so standardized with, you know, the same meats and the same Mm -hmm. profiles and everything. And her idea is to break out of that, you know, to do things differently. And your sauces enable you to do that. They they're not just for one thing, you can definitely use them, you know, for multi things.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you're talking about Leanne and her, uh, I think you said it was pig powder rub. Yeah. Um, So we actually, I'm going to check out that rub by the way, and probably stock up on their website, but (laughs) we don't just like when we're cooking at home, we don't just use our sauce on it. We will actually put rubs on the meat first with the sauce. Mm -hmm. So you can pair them up and you can look at the bigger picture and be creative.
3: Cool. And, and, you know, I want everybody to know, check out eldestkitchen.com. The sources are, I'm going to say, vegan-friendly, no MSG, gluten-free, no high fructose corn syrup. I mean, these are really great sources, and you get the extra bonus of being healthy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes.
2: Brie, you've been doing this now. Um, like you said, you came on our show in May. I believe we were your first podcast. Yes. And we are honored by that. But I and I happen to hear you on another podcast. So I don't I I don't blame you for going on other podcasts. (laughs) We understand. So as long as you keep coming back to us, we're okay. Absolutely. How how has that how has that been working out and how do you enjoy going on all these shows?
4: It's been great. And, you know, uh, like I was saying with my lives, watch the first one. It's horrible. And then watch them now. And they're a lot better. I was very shy child, shy teenager, shy young adult. And then all of a sudden it's boom. And uh, I'll tell you guys, like, I was super nervous when I did your podcast back in May. And tonight it's like no nerves. I was really excited. Excited, like okay, almost time, almost time.
2: <laughs> yeah, but well, I told you, you definitely have that. I don't know what you call it, but where it just it pops, you know, <laughs> you really on the screen and your your personality and stuff. And of course, you came on here, and we're we're just friends, you know. That's all. I did want to ask you. We correspond at your company with Nicole Rabina,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I want to say I don't know her relation to you or whatever, but I will say she's fantastic. I hope it's okay that we give her a shout out because she was definitely instrumental in contacting us about having the contest and our correspondence with you. She's really excellent. I just want to say that.
4: Well, thank you. I agree with you 100%. Nicole, is she's just amazing. She amazes me on our weekly calls every single week.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That's good. It's, it's good to have someone that you could depend on. I, I wish <laughs> I had that. So,
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> we, uh, we talked about uh, TikTok, but I also know that you're
3: on Instagram, mm-hmm. which I am familiar with, which I, I just clicked the following button. I know I follow you on Facebook. I just clicked on, on Instagram, not as big as mm-hmm. I see you're very active there. You just you post like almost every day or a couple of mm-hmm. days a week or something. So, yeah, that's, that's great. Tell us about your your interactions with Instagram. Yeah,
4: Instagram, we are actually going to be, you'll have to keep an eye on it and your followers can keep an eye on it too. We are going to be doing another, like I think this is the biggest giveaway we've done soon once we hit a thousand followers. So we're going to do that push. It's the marketing team and they are fantastic too. And they will be spearheading that giveaway. <laughs>
3: Okay. So everybody follow Brian on on Instagram. It's called Eldest
2: Kitchen. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you get recognized more now?
4: You know, I still feel unrecognizable. I mean, (laughs) I will introduce myself to people a gazillion times. And they're like, yeah, we know who you are. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just telling you again, but you know, with COVID and stuff and We've really been staying home (laughs) a lot. It would be interesting to travel and see, you know, if I am noticed, because to me, I'm still that behind the scenes person who is, you know, keeping things up. I still do that. (laughs) I'm still in charge of all of that. But I don't know. It'd be interesting.
2: (laughs) It it would be, you know, can you imagine somebody? I I know you. Yeah. Your eldest kitchen. <laughs> no,
4: I would be shocked.
3: <laughs> before we let you go, I want to know how is Aldo doing.
4: Oh, Al's great. I actually just saw him this afternoon. He is he's doing fabulous and staying busy. I'm hoping to help him uh, take over stuff, but he does the sales and I do. I do the face in front of the camera.
3: <laughs> well, everybody should
2: know Aldo is, is Bree's dad.
4: Yes. Yep, and the co-founder of Eldes.
3: Exactly.
2: That'll be our next contest uh, <laughs> question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Bree, we we are extremely appreciative. Again, our winners of the contest, Sam Sestaro, Eli Abamer, Adam Beanstock, John O'Brien. They are going to be extremely grateful because I don't think they really realize what they're in for. Your sauce is not just <laughs> people say it's sauce and, you know, come on. But it, it really is good. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not just saying that your sauce is darn good. Oh, so, and, you. and, and Jeff used it in burgers and it just made them moist and delicious. And I use the word moist, which I know is like the worst, word right everyone that that. so i apologize to our listeners and our guests but those burgers were damn moist <laughs> so Bree, we we can't thank you enough and uh yeah. thank you we we look forward to the next time that you're on baseball and bbq absolutely
4: wonderful thank you for having me guys i truly enjoy talking to you both it's been so much fun
3: and thank you brie for be- coming back on on our baseball and bbq podcast we appreciate it Len. well she came
2: back so (laughs) (laughs) you know i mean at least she came back so she obviously had a good time we were the first podcast she was on she came back again hopefully the winners are enjoying their sauces jeff it's time to say goodbye before
3: we do if if anybody wants to reach the show you know what to do call us 516 8214 Email us, baseball and bbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook, baseball and bbq, Instagram, baseball and barbecue with barbecues all spelled out. The Twitter, when you want to tweet tweet, it's at baseball and bbq. Website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. and And please rate and review us.
2: Yeah, now come on. on. What? Now rate and review us. All right. So Jeff. We, we end the show this time with the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser, with Ace and Bobo. Jeff, I will see you next time. See ya. <laughs>